You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Modern Romance, released March 13th, 1981. It was written by Albert Brooks and Monica McGowan Johnson, directed by Brooks, and released by Columbia Pictures. This was Brooks' second film writing and directing after Real Life in 1979, which did very poorly. Nevertheless, Columbia was happy to enter into a partnership with him and surprised industry insiders with what was perceived as a risk at the time. Brooks arranged for a test screening in front of college students who adored the film. Unlike the director of the film within the film, Brooks was very happy with the response and with the cut and delivered the film ahead of schedule, allowing Columbia to release the film two months early in March of 1981 instead of May. After the film's release, Kubrick supposedly called Brooks to ask for advice and congratulate him for so capably directing a film about jealousy, a theme that Kubrick would later explore in Eyes Wide Shut. That's hard for me to believe that that happened. I I don't have as hard a time believing that. We start with a silent studio logo, which always makes me paranoid. Are you paranoid because that the sound isn't you think working. that there's no sound on the, yeah. <laughs> in <Yeah>. the movie? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Robert Cole sits alone in a diner looking troubled. His girlfriend Mary Harvard arrives and sits across from him in the booth. Robert clearly has something he'd like to say, so they quickly order food. Once they've put in their orders, Robert says he thinks they should break up. Mary is more frustrated than upset and says that they can break up after they eat. But he should have known that going in, because obviously right. he came here to do that. Why would you order? Because now, and then tell her. Because he's hungry. And now he's it's literally be a not thinking about her at all. Awkward moment while you're waiting for your food. I think he's just a self centered jerk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I agree. She asks about his work, and he doesn't really want to talk about it. He refers to their relationship as a no-win situation. You've heard of a no-win situation, haven't you? No. No? Really, no? You've never heard of one? Vietnam? This? I'm telling you, they're around. I think we're in one of them. She glares at him while he breaks up with her for what is clearly not the first time. She is too quick to accept the rejection for Robert's taste, and he accuses her of having cheated on him. She tells him to believe whatever he wants, and he follows her out of the restaurant, urging her back to finish the meal when we fade to black for the opening credits and title. We hear a sax instrumental for You Are So Beautiful to Me, and we see Robert's car, a Porsche 912, skid up outside the offices of American International Pictures, a production company that last year, in 1980, distributed two great films, Mad Max and The Visitor, two mediocre films, Defiance and How to Beat the High Cost of Living, and two awful films, Gorp and Nothing Personal, before being acquired by Filmways toward the end of the year. My only regret with starting the podcast in 1980 is that it makes AIP look bad, because AIP was basically the Golan Globus of the 60s and 70s, back when Roger Corman was calling all the shots. The AIP banner laid dormant until it was resurrected by MGM six months ago, and released its first two films since 1980 in February of 2021. Wait, what movies did it release? A Johnny Depp vehicle called Minamata and an ensemble dark comedy called Breaking News in Yuba County. 
Uh, I guess it's not promising that I haven't heard of either of these. No, I hadn't either. <laughs> but the cast of the of the Yuba County one sounds actually pretty great. I'm assuming that they shot this film just before the AIP closed their doors because it still it, has the sign in, out front. In, in 1980? Right, yeah. Not not these films <laughs> that Correct, came out yes. in 2021. <laughs> I'm assuming they shot Modern Romance while this office still existed. But maybe after it had closed up or while it was finishing its last few films. Robert enters the building with his and Mary's meals wrapped up and offers her salad to his coworker Jay in the cutting room. Jay is cutting film on a flatbed, which we had to learn how to operate in film school despite Avid already being invented. Yes. Seemed Fundamentals, like sweetie. Come on. <laughs> right. In case we go back to this. In case Snake Pliskin turns off electricity. <laughs> Robert tells Jay that he broke it off with Mary and Jay tries to console him and reassure him that it was the right move. Jay also shares with him that the director, David, called and that he's worried about a part of the film that they're editing. He thinks it's confusing. What's wrong with Real 2? David says, and I don't necessarily agree with him on this, that the whole secret code part is confusing. He wants to cut down. I'm telling you, you can't give a director video cassettes. He'll look at this thing, he'll change it every night. It's not confusing. It's fine. This is known as the editor's dilemma. You cannot finish a movie if the director is constantly watching it because they will always want changes no matter what it looks yeah. like. I remember uh, we were still doing VHSs when I worked at Laser Pacific. Yeah. They, that I'm like, there was only one show that still used VHSs and it was The Simpsons. And every night we'd send out a dozen VHSs for... Just like, to the EPs? Yeah, just yeah. to the producers to watch. And it was just, it was like, I'm like... I mean, this was many years ago, but I'm like, why are we doing yeah. this? This is weird. <laughs> well, when we were at Pie Town together, um, when I worked in the dub room for a while, mm -hmm. I had to do VHS copies of like every episode of House Hunters, which is like they're constantly working on 15 episodes of House Hunters at the same time. <laughs> and there's like 12 producers in the building. So it's just like way too many tapes that we're making all the time. The day they uninstalled them, I like had a little party in my office. I was like, <laughs> yes, we're going to DVDs. I can make these in half the time. It's ridiculous. Why was anybody doing that? It was, what, 2007, 2008? I mean, Pytown was 2010? Yeah, or 10 maybe. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, why is anybody using VHS still? Robert decides briefly to make the director's changes, but as soon as his assistant Jay hands him the necessary reels, he changes his mind again and decides he's going home. Jay offers to make the changes himself to Reel 2. According to the tape around the reel, the film is called Journey to an Unknown Planet, which is not the name of an existing film. However, there is a book called Journey to an Unknown Planet written by Joshua DeVries and self-published in 2016. It's probably so probably not, not the basis for this one. Do you think that his book is based on the movie within this movie? Probably. No, it's not. It, <laughs> the cover of it made it look like it was a fan fiction about like the Peekman video games. Like there's like a little red, yellow, and blue character walking mm -hmm. on a branch. But I think they were technically different designs, but it looked enough like that that I assumed it was a video game fan fiction at first. Mm -hmm. No offense, Joshua, if you find this. Robert worries out loud again that he's made a mistake, and Jay reminds him that all they ever did was fight. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we ever did. I'm telling you, we fought and fought, and then we had great sex. We never really could talk. Do you need to talk? Do you need to talk? Oh, that helps. That's supportive. Do you need to talk? Come on, please. We're men. Can we have a bond? Okay. Fucker. This is a conversation technique we'll see him use over and over over the course of the film. Anytime someone says something that he doesn't like, he repeats it back to them in an exasperated voice as a question. Everything about this character annoys the crap out of me. 
On his way out the door, Jay insists that he take a lewd or two with him. Rhetorically, he asks Jay how hard it could be to find the perfect person out there. I haven't, but maybe you can. I don't know. I haven't. That's how you're going to send me out? It's repeating him again. Robert races home, expecting to find an apologetic answering machine message from the girl he just dumped. I don't know what she would have to apologize for. He yeah. wants her to just beg for him to take her back, I guess. Instead, he finds that the machine wasn't even on. He picks up the phone to make a call, and obviously, as the audience, we're worried that he's calling Mary, but it turns out that he's calling a phone line to see what time it is, just to verify it against the clock in his living room. It's correct, it turns out. He picks up the phone again, and we're supposed to worry again that it's Mary, but he's calling Jay to see how things have progressed back at the studio in the last 30 minutes or so. Robert confesses that he still feels terrible about breaking it off with Mary, and Jay says, everything's going great, and he advises Robert to take one of the lewds, when Robert admits that he already took both before he even got in the car. Robert offers multiple times to come back to the office and help, but Jay convinces him to stay home. We follow Robert around the house as he undresses and puts on a robe, all the while talking himself through his actions. Usually this feels artificial when a character talks to themselves in a movie this much, but here it feels like a natural side effect of the lewds that he took. Yeah, yeah. Fully intoxicated, Robert picks up the phone again to make another call, but again, it's not to Mary, it's Jay. And he tells Jay that he loves him, and then Jay tells him to get some sleep. I love you. I mean, in the right way. I, 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 I think you're an amazing guy, and I, and I think I just love you. The lewds kicked in, right? <sighs> the lewds kicked, yeah. He's repeating him again. Give me some credit, will you? Robert tries to tell a story about a childhood classmate who he loved that died before Robert could tell him, and Jay eventually convinces Robert off the phone but not before Robert tries to order more lewds from him. Can you get more lewds? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to get maybe a hundred. When he hangs up, Robert's attention drifts to his parakeet, Petey, across the living room. Petey looks surprisingly similar to the parakeet with the same name from Dumb and Dumber. Petey didn't even have a head! Harry, I took care of it. Robert tells his bird how great Jay is. Digging through his record collection, Robert puts on this Beethoven remix, but then immediately turns it back off. He flips through his Rolodex for a while before calling a girl named Ellen to make an extravagant surprise date night for the following night. Ellen seems surprised to hear from him, but agrees to the date, and again, he can't help but repeat her words to her. I didn't even think you liked me. <laughs> Ellen, don't be paranoid. Didn't think you liked me. He asks for her address, but she reminds him that he's been there before. He promises a truly special date and hangs up. Now it's an incoming call, but it's not Jay or Ellen or Mary. It's Harry. Harry! Your hands are freezing! <laughs> Harry is another assistant editor looking for work on a new Schlesinger film. Director John Schlesinger, at the time known for his films Midnight Cowboy, Day of the Locust, and Marathon Man, was in 1980 gearing up to begin filming Honky Tonk Freeway, which we'll be reviewing later this season. Robert agrees to put in a good word for Harry with Schlesinger's team. Harry asks how Mary's doing, because she's just so great, and when Robert admits that they've just separated, Harry asks if it would be inappropriate for him to ask her out. As blatantly intoxicated as Robert is in this scene, I still feel like this is completely inappropriate of the yeah, guy to ask. Yeah, of course it is. Especially when you want this guy to hook you up with a job. I mean, yeah, I guess at least he's asking, so the answer could have just been no, but... Right. You I know. wouldn't do it in the same phone call where I was like, put in a <laughs> yeah. good word for me. Wait till I get the job, and then... Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think that'd be rude? You're a scumbag. What? 
You're trash. You ought to go live in an ash can. Wait, wait a what minute. What the hell do you mean, ask her out? You said you weren't even going out with her. Well, maybe I'm lying. What are you, what are you, Mr. Scumbag? Why don't you move right in? Here, I'll tell you what. I'll move out of my house. You move right in, okay? As soon as he hangs up, Robert wanders out of his house in a bathrobe, mumbling, Don't have sex with Harry. Please. Don't have sex. He makes it as far as the driver's seat of his Porsche before collapsing to sleep for the night. We fade to morning on the same shot of the car, and when he wakes up, he realizes that he never spoke with Mary and considers this a success. He dresses properly for work and gets back to the car, but he finds that he killed his battery by leaving the radio on all night. He asks a neighbor woman if she has jumper cables to start the car, and she says that they're in the garage. Feel free to use them before driving away herself. Apparently <laughs> unfamiliar with the process of jump-starting a car. <laughs> to be fair, he didn't ask the right question. That's true. <laughs> He calls Jay and apologizes for his lateness, and Jay tells him that he made the fixes last night to Reel 2 and that he feels good about them. Robert asks if Jay cares if he takes the day off since the changes are made, and David, the director, doesn't need to see them until tomorrow anyway, and Jay says that's fine. Robert decides he needs vitamins to get healthy, but he's out of everything except for vitamin E, and his E's have all melted together. My dad used to have these giant jars of vitamin E which is, I think, like fish oil gel yeah, caps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just melt into a blob after a week, especially if they're anywhere near sunlight. He heads to a health food store and is conned into buying more vitamins than he needs by an eager salesperson. Although, I mean, how many vitamins do you need, really? <laughs> All I, of them. I was going to say, there's, there's a handful that are essential. Aren't most of them supposed to be in your diet already? Yes. You don't but need you, the you, pills. You do need vitamins. You just right. don't need them in pill form. Yeah, you don't need them as a supplement. If you're eating right, which not that I've ever done that in my life. Yeah. <laughs> like, Look, who's Nor talking? do you take supplements. <laughs> Nor do I take supplements. Exactly. And I'm fine. <laughs> Dies. Dies live on a podcast. He heads directly to a sports locker for exercise equipment when he's interrupted by another salesperson, this time played by Albert Brooks's real life older brother, Bob Einstein. Mr. Einstein talks Robert out of the prepackaged box of running supplies that he's been eyeballing. Einstein sets him up with a $50 pair of shoes, two full tracksuits at $75 each. No, 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 why? Wait, I, I'll take one. I don't want two. What are you going to do if one's in the wash? Maybe I won't run that day. I misjudged you. I'm not perfect. Buy the box. You'll like it. No, 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 no. no. It's all right. I'm, I'm, I'll take these. You sure? Yeah. Brooks quickly agrees to the double tracksuit and also salt tablets, ankle weights, a headband, sweatband, supporters, whatever that is and a wrist wallet. I like this moment because Brooks points out that the pants have a zipper and there's no reason for a wrist wallet. And Einstein's excuse is, eh, it's better to keep it on your wrist. <laughs> and Brooks just goes, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> that sounds right. He agrees to buy probably $300 worth of running supplies. Driving home, Robert has to flip through the radio station multiple times to get away from songs that remind him of Mary. Love Hurts, God Only Knows What I'd Be Without You, and then Along Comes Mary. We cut to Robert prepping to run on a track he gets maybe 100 yards down the path before he stops to call Mary at her job from a payphone. He mocks the woman answering the phone by repeating her words yet again. Fidelity savings. Fidelity. Again, he can't get through to Mary, and when he hangs up, he considers this another sign that it wasn't meant to be. Back at home, Robert decides that he should call Ellen and cancel the date because he's not ready, but as soon as her answering machine picks up, he just confirms that the date is happening as planned. Yeah. When he hangs up, we find out that he doesn't remember what she even looks like as he starts to ask himself out loud, like, what? who is this person? What do they look like? He gets a phone call from his mother, who wants to know how Mary's doing, and he breaks the news to her before rushing her off the phone. His mother has a comical habit of 
ignoring everything he says and just trying to continue the conversation and asking questions every time he says he's busy and tries to hang up. As soon as he hangs up on his mother, he calls Mary's desk at work again, but this time he gets her on the phone. He's not sure what to say, and he hangs up without saying anything as soon as he hears her voice. Hello? All right, that is fate. That's three times and no contact. But wasn't that contact? It totally was. She said words to you and you heard them. That seems like contact. But I guess that he, he didn't, didn't follow respond. through with the contact. It's but he fate. contacted her by calling anything. her. <laughs> like her phone rang. So she got a message from him, which is someone wants to talk to you. That night, we see Robert getting into his car and driving to a cute little home in a suburb. He knocks on the door of what we, of course, assume is Ellen's house. But when the door opens, Mary's standing there. And it will be hard not to consider this fourth attempt contact. <laughs> Instead of opening with an apology or any kind of pleasantries, he comments on her dress and accuses her of going on a date. You know, like the one he's going on yeah. right now. <laughs> she closes the door in his face and he walks back to the car at the curb. Now he pulls up to Ellen's building and he buzzes her from the door. Even now at the door to her building, he doesn't have any idea who's going to come out of it. Luckily, he does recognize her as she's exiting as an employee of Peter Bogdanovich's. He says he met her at the Nickelodeon rap party, and he admits right away that when he made the date, he had no idea who she was or what she looked like. He overlooks a perfectly acceptable excuse that he had taken lewds, instead choosing to inform her that he just broke up with a longtime girlfriend last night, mm -hmm. seconds before calling her. Helen is understandably reticent to get in the car, but he insists. He pulls away from her building just as a special request comes on the radio, Michael Jackson's She's Out of My Life. Neither Ellen nor Robert says a word to each other, and he looks like he's on the verge of tears as he slowly makes four right turns and pulls right back up in front of her building. <laughs> he tells her that this is happening too soon and that he'll call her back when he's ready, and hopefully she won't answer, but who knows. He drives across town to a thrifties to buy gifts for Mary, and Richard recognized this location. Yeah, I got super excited, and I, I paused and rewound it because I was trying to get a good lay of the land. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this thrifties is now a Rite Aid, uh, and it is directly across the street from my office. Yeah. I've been into it dozens and dozens of times, and that's why I immediately recognized, like, the fence and the brickwork. I was like, oh, my God, I know this place. Is the interior also that location? Um, I couldn't tell from that because they have, okay. they, they've renovated I'm sure. only, only, no, but even just in the time that I've been at this office, they've done a huge renovation oh, of okay. that Rite Aid. So the exterior is the same though. For the interiors, it almost looks like the grocery store that Gene Hackman was managing and all night long. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I started to wonder why we didn't have cinematic universes at the time so that Gene Hackman could just be the manager here <laughs> and they just shoot it on the set of that other movie without having to dress a second grocery store set. <laughs> He buys a giant stuffed giraffe and a talking doll for children. I, I like when he's in the store, though, and he sees the giraffe and his, his like, response to himself is, oh, Mary will like this. Yeah. Like, and, and of, course, of course, we as the audience are just like, what the, I, will she really? She'll yeah. like You're a stuffed so giraffe? that she's going to okay, like this shitty cool. giraffe. This $4 giraffe. At and the then he's, like, store. asking the clerk, like, do you have any dolls that talk, specifically say something like, I'm sorry. Or Mary. Oh. Do any of them say names? <laughs> we see him tuck all the hastily wrapped gifts against Mary's front door, and then he scribbles a note for her. Call me when you get home. I love you. He goes home and checks his answering machine message, but it's just his mom following up on their conversation from earlier. The phone in the room rings again, and it's his mother again. He tries desperately to get her off the phone, claiming to be in the middle of work, but she won't give up that easy. Once he finally gets her off the phone, it rings again, 
and when he answers, it's some other unintroduced associate of Robert's, Tommy Phillips, who wants to chat, but Robert says that he can't, and he'll call him back and pretends to take a phone number down to reach him at. He just, like, scribbles in the air like yeah. the guy can yeah. see what he's doing. <laughs> but I guess we all do that. Do we? <laughs> I mean, you pantomime the thing that you tell someone you're doing when you're lying. Like when I call you and I say, no, I'm not at McDonald's, and I pretend I'm, like, you know, doing something important. Well, you're at McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused. I'm, like, performing life-saving <laughs> surgery on my Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you die on me. <laughs> Robert gets back in his car and drives by Mary's place again to check on the presents. They're still on the porch after 11. He wanders out by the docks and overhears a couple kissing in the dark. He moves to a payphone to call Mary again, but she's still not home yet. We cut to another payphone where an old man, presumably Robert in the future, is interrogating someone on a call. What time did you get home? I went by your house. The lights were out. Are you dating the doctor again? There's someone waiting for the booth there. Why don't I just come on over? He's there now, isn't he? Please. I wasn't born yesterday. The score here strikes a surreal, creepy tone, and the clear message is that this is who Robert will grow into, a sad old man who doesn't trust anybody and denies everyone any semblance of privacy. Well, th- this, is, uh, this isn't this is the point where I've reached it, but uh, towards the end of this movie is where I understand why Kubrick called. Yeah. Because it's like, oh yeah, this is a straight up horror film. It is, 100%. It could have been much darker, actually. I'll touch on what I thought was going to happen the first time I saw it. Robert makes another attempt to call Mary, and presumably it fails because we see him zoom past her house again to check on the gifts. Back at home, there's another message on the machine, and when he hits play, it's almost as if Robert willed these exact four words that he wanted to hear the most. This is it. This has got to be it. I like the giraffe. Oh, Robert, what are we going to do? I miss you. Mary admits that she misses him, and we cut immediately to her opening her front door to let him in. They move directly to her bedroom, and she accuses him of not knowing what love is. I tend to agree here. I don't think he's in love with her. I think he's obsessed with her, which is different. He doesn't actually care about her. He just cares about himself and what he can get from her. He describes to her his actions over the course of the previous 24 hours as though they were proof that he loved her and not that he's neurotic and solipsistic. She accuses him of confusing movie love for real love, and again, I think she's exactly right. They kiss and hold each other in bed. Even throughout this lovemaking scene, the two of them are constantly disagreeing with each other about whether or not they're on the same page and what they can hope to achieve together as a couple. There isn't one scene in this whole movie where they actually seem happy together. She reminds him that he tried to break up with her yesterday, and he finally says something sweet to her. Because if they blindfolded me and they hid you in the United States, I'd find you. And if I didn't find you, I'd find somebody else and I'd tell them about you. But then immediately admits that he stole the line from Easy Rider, which I don't recognize that line from Easy Rider, and I've now watched it twice in the last 48 hours, and I did not hear that line either time. <laughs> so I don't know if this is a reference to a different Dennis Hopper movie. Was it, it wasn't a book first, right? I don't think I don't know if it was adapted from a book. I don't think it was. So if, if I miss that line in Easy Rider somewhere, somebody let me know a time code. Maybe I have a weird version of the film. 
When he wakes up the next morning, she's dressed and ready for work. He tells her that she can't wear the dress she has on to the office, but she just laughs off his warnings. Look at that, really, please, honey. Oh, you're just saying that because you love No, me. I'm saying that because your nipples look like eyeballs, honey. Put something else on, really. No, he's actually saying that because he doesn't love you or trust you in any way. He follows her the whole way to the front door, insisting that she change into something less revealing than a full-length long skirt dress. Here's where we actually get my favorite line from him in the whole film, though. Honey, there's people that only rape. That's all they do. They're out there. Okay. When she's left for work, he starts to shave in her bathroom. Searching for razors, he comes across a drawer full of phone bills, and he can't help himself but to read all the numbers, call durations, and times. Can't help himself. Right. Apparently, she made an hour-long call to New York at 10 p.m. on July 29th. 10 p.m. in Los Angeles, obviously meaning 1 a.m. in New York. Sounds like a serious phone call, he thinks. Back in the cutting room, Robert is checking out Jay's changes to Real 2. George Kennedy plays the leader on a spaceship, and he's shouting at his henchmen that they must discover a secret code hidden somewhere on the ship. To make it less confusing, Jay took out a section where Kennedy asks each henchman one at a time if they have the code, and in the current cut, one henchman says that he thinks he knows the code, and Kennedy barks, You know nothing! Robert thinks they could save even more confusion by cutting out this back and forth, and instead just giving the henchman a suspicious glance so as to not telegraph the fact that he does have the code for later in the film. Why would the guy, sorry, to analyze the film within the film, why would the guy who has the code, who's pretending to not have the code, say he has 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 the code? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Those are two different motivations for that character. One is to admit, and one is to, for some reason, hide. To swap out the shot, Jay has to dig through a pile of film strips and remember which trimmed sections match the reaction that Robert wants to cut in. They cut it all together, and it looks good, but suddenly the director, David, bursts in with ideas on how to change the ending and save the whole film. It turns out that the movie-fixing colossal change that he wants to make is adding a bit of foley for George Kennedy's footsteps in a corridor for one shot. Robert tells him he doesn't think it's necessary, but agrees to get the pounding footsteps and heavy breathing that David is looking for. They play the recut of Reel 2 for him, and he wants to know where George Kennedy's you-know-nothing line went, because that was his favorite part. Robert and David argue back and forth on whether to include Kennedy's line, and eventually Robert relents, because he's the editor, and the other guy's the director. I feel like editing, when you had to do it on film, must have been much more infuriating. I'm sure. I can't imagine. Because of how much more difficult every little change would be. Jay takes over putting the sequence back together, and Robert and David go for a walk. David's paranoid because they use the word bowels to describe the lower decks of the ship in their film, and David just heard them use the same word in the movie Alien, and he doesn't want to be accused of ripping it off. Robert assures him that bowels is a perfectly acceptable word for the lower decks of a ship in any movie. David invites Robert to a party at his home tonight, and Robert tries to refuse for a bit, but eventually gives up. We cut directly to Robert and Mary approaching the front door, Instead of ringing the obvious doorbell, Robert yanks on the chain of a decorative bell and breaks it. When he answers the door, David tells Robert not to worry about it because he's renting the house anyway. Because nobody owns their houses in Hollywood. Yeah. Inside the house, Mary recognizes a couple guests and heads over to talk to them while David drags Robert to meet George Kennedy. David insists George Kennedy tell Robert a story about how he went to the wrong studio on the first day of production. That's the whole story. There's nothing to it, but David acted like it was going to be some great story. The whole time he's listening to it, Robert is watching Mary speak to these other two party guests across the room, and suddenly they all disappear into a bathroom together. After George Kennedy 
David brings Robert to meet Meadowlark Lemon from the Harlem Globetrotters, who's here at the party because he's in David's next movie. Meadowlark pulls Robert aside to ask who the girl is that he arrives with because he thinks she's extraordinarily attractive. Robert gets even more paranoid and leaves to find her when she's coming out of the bathroom, having done a bit of coke with the other two party guests. Robert insists it's time for them to go, and the next day, with the sound mixer, they're trying to solve David's problems with the footsteps. The head mixer tells him that it sounds fine, but Robert asks if they have any heavy stock footsteps. The head mixer suggests the Incredible Hulk, but warns that the footsteps are probably too slow and wouldn't match the scene. Robert asks for a clip of the Hulk running, and they have to take a break, because it's going to take some time to find. But he warns him that, probably even running, the Hulk isn't fast enough for this scene. Yeah. The man playing the music mixer at the desk is another sibling of Albert Brooks's, Clifford Einstein, and the sound effects mixer, who's actually working the board, is Gene Garvin, an actual sound mixer with credits dating back to the 30s, like A Place in the Sun, The War of the Worlds, Shane, Stalag 17, and The Ten Commandments. This is his only acting credit. Really? Yeah. Robert calls Mary to have a conversation about dinner tonight, and he overhears a coworker compliment her dress, which sets off his jealousy radar. She may have to entertain some clients tonight, and Robert won't let her get off the phone the same way that his mother won't let him get off the phone. When she eventually hangs up on him, he pulls that old phone bill out, and he dials the long-distance number to see who she was calling in New York. A man answers, and Robert pretends to be looking for a doctor, but the guy explains that he's not a doctor, that he skis. For a living, I guess? That's the way he makes it sound. The sound guy finds the Hulk running clip, and they cue it up, so Robert gets off the phone. Not only is it still way too slow for the scene, but it has the sound of Lou Ferrigno growling over the whole thing. Yeah. Hold, 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 hold it. Kill the projector. What is that? I told you, it's too slow. Too slow? Forget that. The guy's screaming. Didn't say that. It said Hulk running. Well, right in Hulk screaming. That's the effect. And again, it reminds me of, like, how much film editing and and you know sound editing and all this has changed because i'm like how obnoxious somebody literally has to go and find some reel and mm-hmm. put it in the machine and play it back and it's you know in, you know instead of it taking 2 seconds to click on a cue to play it back to test if it's going to work you've just taken 5 minutes to find this thing and you're like it's definitely not going to work and you really have to trust your sound guy who just knows his library inside and out i also feel like they must have pulled this from the final mix of the episode because apparently the footsteps and the growling are on the same track yeah. which they should very clearly be on separate tracks yes robert decides that they'll record the foley live here today and asks the mixer what material he thinks the floor looks like carpet it is i'm just saying more in terms of what in the reality of the motion picture it looks like. What do you think? It's a spaceship. What kind of surface might he be running on? I don't know. Space floor? <laughs> <laughs> I love how intentionally, like, aggressively unhelpful he's being for yeah. this whole scene. He's like, this is not necessary. You guys are wasting my time. Maybe it's one of those planets that don't have gravity. <laughs> yeah. Robert has Jay chase him around the room to get his breath going, and then he records the Foley stepping on tiles, and then they play it back. It seems totally acceptable, and they call it a wrap. And when they close the session here, you can hear someone on the intercom say, We have Heaven's Gate, the short version, which is a joke on the film's 1981 release. Modern Romance was actually released between the initial long and short re-release of Michael Cimino's underrated Western epic. Robert calls Fidelity again, even though Mary sounded especially busy when she hung up on him, but it turns out that she already left for the day because she's entertaining those clients like she told him she was. Robert lies that there's an illness in the family and demands to know where she is, 
and then races over to the Imperial Gardens Japanese restaurant. Robert barges into the restaurant and drags Mary away from the table and the clients she's entertaining. He repeats her to herself again. Right, I tried to call you. The line was busy. The line was busy. Just sit down for a minute. He tells her they're going to leave together and have a meal somewhere else, but she can say goodbye. When she says she's not going to do that, he acts like she's being rude and inconveniencing him. She points out that he could cost her her job by making this obnoxious scene, and here, I think, is where we see the Robert character at his most aggravatingly petty. What do you mean you wouldn't do it to me? You did it to me. I'm here. I, I'm alone now. I've got nothing to do. What am I going to do? Just wander down the street and eat alone? I mean, I feel horrible. He decides to ruin the quote-unquote surprise that he had an entire weekend vacation planned for them, and they need to leave for it right now. He tells God to strike him dead if he's lying, and then seconds later admits that he was lying, but that if God strikes him dead, he'll understand, and it's okay. That's how much he loves her. He tells her that if she doesn't go away with him this weekend, that she actually doesn't love him, and she agrees to because she's a dummy. You know what? But I just agree to the fact that she deserves absolutely everything she gets yeah. from this dude. When she yeah. when she turns right here is the moment where I was like, okay, then, yeah. then yeah. You, you deserve this guy. She finally gets him to leave the restaurant by agreeing to leave on a trip with him in the morning. We get one last instance of him repeating her words, but it's probably the funniest one so far. I love you very much, Mary. I know you do. Oh, I know you do. I guess that's the same as I love you too. Sure. The next day, he picks her up, and when she asks where they're going, he gives her a bunch of terrible clues. Another, another building in Beverly Hills that I've frequented. Which, which building where he's picking her up? Yes, yeah. That's what it. is that building now? It's still a bank. Oh, okay. Eventually, he admits that they're going to Idlewild, a small mountain resort that she's never even heard of. Do you guys know much about Idlewild? I don't. No. Their mayor is a dog. <laughs> oh, I did read that, actually. Yeah, Miramax. Miramax? Miramax. Miramax. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of the Weinsteins. Oh, no. They pull up to the Naughty Pines cabins, cozy little cottages. Just to be clear, you're saying Naughty? With a K. Yeah, with Naughty. Not Naughty Pines. <laughs> naughty Pines. They're just it's a coded in pornography. Naughty Pines. It's a play on words. <laughs> Mary remembers that she needs to call a friend who planned on staying at her place this weekend to tell her where she hides her key. Robert can't help himself and watches her entire conversation with the person on a payphone outside. Even though she told him who she was calling, when she gets back, he asks. He admits that he found the phone bill and he asks who she called in New York. And she walks out of the cabin, furious with him, and out into the woods. He follows her and coaxes her back into the cabin. She tells him that the New York number is her brother's girlfriend, and he thanks her for answering the question, but then calls her a liar by admitting that he called the number and a man answered. Clearly, this is a man's phone number, and she didn't want to tell him because she knew that he would freak out the way he does, the way he's doing. She tries to collect her things and leave, but here, he starts strong-arming her on the yeah. way out of the cabin, and honestly, this movie could easily have ended with him murdering her in this room. I, I th This is where I thought that this movie was going to take like a, a turn. I kind of wish it did. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, Albert yeah. Brooks, have you been stringing me along this whole time for you to like kill somebody at the yeah. end of this movie? I, I might have liked the movie had that happened. Oh, I still love the movie, but I think, Do you? I think it would have hammered home the point, I think, so much better if he had just killed her here. He seems legitimately angry, and it's completely believable from this Robert character that he would murder her in this room. She tells him that they were broken up when those phone calls happened, and that none of it is his business, and then he brags that he never called anyone while they were broken up, which is for sure not true, but it doesn't matter. There's no way for her to check this. Yeah. He made a date with Ellen hours after breaking up with her, and it, it didn't seem out of character for him then. But even if... She turned around and said, okay, well, give me your phone bills. And he's like, okay, yeah, well, I called a bunch of people, but that's how much I love you. 
is that I showed you this anyway. Yeah. She tells him this vacation is already a waste. I don't think we should go together anymore. This is too painful for me. I can't do this. It's over. Marry me. Marry you? Be my wife. He pitches their entire lives together, that they'll have a house and children, and of course she says yes. Ugh. An epilogue comes up on screen that says, Robert and Mary were married three weeks later in Las Vegas, Nevada, and then it's followed by, they were divorced the following month, and then finally, they are currently dating with plans to remarry. The camera backs out of the cabin window under a reprise of, you are so beautiful to me from the start of the film. And that's the end. You liked this movie? I love this movie, yeah. What's wrong with you? Just because he's an uncomfortable, infuriating character doesn't mean it's a knock against the movie. No, but I there is there is nothing in this movie like everything is infuriating to me. It's 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 frustrating. It it's like a Woody Allen movie. I do not it like is, it. It is like a Woody <laughs> Allen movie. Um, but it's a frustration comedy. That's how they go. And I know I, that's not everybody's genre, but I like it because it's such a perfectly conceived character. This guy who is just jealousy personified. Yeah, but I feel like we don't. I, I almost feel like you're right that we don't take it far enough if that's the case. I, I, I do think that if this movie ended with him murdering her in that room, that it would be on a lot more people's top 10 lists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's a phenomenal movie. And I think it's, you know, it, moving through the rest of his career, like Lost in America is very similar in places. Where yeah. It's, but both of the characters are obviously more likable there. Yes. Um, But I just think... uh. I, I love how much I hate this guy the same way that I love how much I hate Walter Sobchak in The Big Lebowski. He's just perfectly annoying. He says exactly the right thing to troll you into being furious with him. Yeah, but I feel like there in this particular movie, there's no redeeming characters to fall in love with or to like follow or root for. Because, because Mary's Because Mary is also yeah. just she's, as infuriating because I mean, she's going along with it. Yeah, and so but she's I also... Don't, kind of captive in this she's emotionally hostage to his the only person i like in this whole movie is bruno kirby like <laughs> yeah he's great <laughs> jay is wonderful because yeah, bruno kirby never plays a bad guy well he's kind of the bad guy in uh um good morning, good morning vietnam, vietnam, vietnam yeah. a little bit um i mean he's not obviously the worst people in that movie <laughs> 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 the american government um but yeah uh it's it's a lot of fun Our writer-director here was Albert Brooks, who also played Robert Cole in the film. He was born Albert Einstein because his father was a comedian. And a famous one at that, Albert's father, Harry Einstein, better known by many as Parkia Carcass, a recurring character he portrayed in comedy sketches on radio, film, and television. So the use of the name Albert Einstein is actually meant to be a joke. Yes. Because I was going to say, he was born... After Albert Einstein yes. was famous, yep. so he knew he was doing that. He knew what that. he was doing. Okay. He did it on purpose. Got it. In fact, Harry Starr on the Hollywood Walk of Fame reads Park Your Carcass and not his own name. <laughs> Harry made frequent guest appearances on the radio programs of Eddie Cantor and Al Jolson and was a favorite comedian of many celebrities, including Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, whose daughter would later star in a remake of Jolson's Immortal the Jazz Singer. Ball and Arnaz coaxed Einstein out of retirement to perform at their Friars Club roast. His set supposedly went really well, but when he took a seat next to Milton Berle after the monologue, he suffered a fatal heart attack in the middle of the Friars Club roast. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And I think Albert Brooks was like 11 at the time or something. He was really young. Harry's youngest son, Albert Einstein, grew up among showbiz types in the L.A. area. 
attending Beverly Hills High School with classmates Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner. As a guest on Johnny Carson, Rob Reiner's father, Carl, was once asked who he considered to be the funniest men he knew, to which he replied, Mel Brooks and a high school kid named Albert Einstein. It's believed by some that this exact quote is why Albert decided on the surname Brooks. He just took it from Mel Brooks to combine yeah, their names. I, I, I thought about that. Coincidentally, Mel Brooks would later provide the voice of scientist Albert Einstein in DreamWorks Animation's Peabody and Sherman. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Last year, we had him for about five minutes in Private Benjamin as Goldie Hawn's husband who mm-hmm. dies during their wedding night sex. He's also the writer-director of Lost in America, Defending Your Life, and most recently, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. He appears in Taxi Driver. He provides the voice of hammock enthusiast Hank Scorpio on The Simpsons. (laughs) And also Marlon in Finding Nemo, a role originally recorded in full by actor William H. Macy before it was decided that he didn't fit the part. He's also in Drive and This is 40. See, in in Drive, he plays a much darker character. Yeah. Which is why I thought... He's like a Russian mobster in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like him and Ron Perlman, which I think is a fun pair. Yes. Uh although I do not care for that movie overall. Uh, That's why I was hoping this movie was going to do something. Like, that. that this movie's been stringing me along for something, and it just wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, His co-writer, Monica McGowan-Johnson, was a regular collaborator of Brooks's. Uh, She co-wrote Real Life, Lost in America, Mother, The Muse, and she also wrote The Scout, which Brooks wrote and starred in, but it's directed by The Island director, Michael Ritchie. Cinematographer, Eric Saarinen was the DP on The Hills Have Eyes and later Lost in America. He also worked on the camera crew for Death Race 2000 and A Force of One. Editor David Finfer edited Defiance last year, and he's back for Albert Brooks' titles Lost in America and Defending Your Life. He also cut Bogus Journey, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, and The Santa Claus 2 and 3. Catherine Harold played Mary Harvard. We saw her last year in The Hunter as Steve McQueen's pregnant girlfriend. She's back later this year in The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, and later Raw Deal. She also plays Larry Sanders' ex-wife on the Larry Sanders Show. Which is a great show. Bruno Kirby played Jay. We had him in Borderline and Where the Buffalo Roam last year. He also played Young Clemenza in Godfather Part Two. Later he'll show up in Good Morning Vietnam when Harry Met Sally and the City Slickers films. I don't think he's in the second City Slickers. Is he not? I thought they no. all came back. No, it's just Daniel Stern and John Lovitz replaces Bruno Kirby's character. Oh, that's as, right. As not, not replaces, but is the, the third the third wheel there when when did he die did he die between the two films maybe he did no i don't think he died until like 2004 or 5 yeah yeah, i think you're right actually because i i remember him dying and i don't think i knew who he was in the 90s i mean i knew vaguely but i didn't know bruno kirby jane halloran played ellen she's gloria preston in hero at large last year she also plays stella in body heat later this season uh she's also a casting director of this film uh, I don't know if she did this film, but for she for uh, she did uh, Heaven's Gate, which I think maybe why there was a Heaven's Gate joke in there. Oh, interesting. Bob Einstein played the sporting goods salesman. Obviously, I said he's the brother of Albert Brooks. He played the character of Officer Judy for the Smothers Brothers. He was Super Dave Osborne on his own show. He he played Super Dave Osborne for years. Was he also in an animated version of that? There there was there was a kids cartoon that he did the voice for. Um, I I don't know what the origin. Of Super the character Dave. is yeah I don't know yeah uh I, I just i just the the concept of his character for people who don't know it was always like this ragdoll dummy that right. got like thrown or run over <laughs> this stunt would go terribly wrong somehow and yeah. he'd always get smashed and he'd be like a puppet for the second half of the joke yeah he also played matt damon's dad in oceans 13 
and uh, he was Marty Funkhauser on Curb Your Enthusiasm. James L. Brooks played the director David. He's created television series like Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, Taxi, and The Tracy Ullman Show. As a result of working on Ullman, Brooks makes up a third of the Holy Trinity with Matt Groening and Sam Simon, who would develop the Simpsons animated shorts into the longest-running animated series of all time. He also has a soundtrack credit for contributing the lyrics to Spider Pig. (laughs) (laughs) Spider Pig, Spider Pig, does whatever a spider pig does. Can he swing from a web? No, he can't. He's a pig. (laughs) I feel like anybody could have come up with those. (laughs) Sing it all the time, though. Yeah. He had not directed anything at the time of appearing in this film, but he would go on to earn three Oscars in 1983 for writing, directing, and producing Terms of Endearment. He later earned nominations for writing and producing Broadcast News and As Good As It Gets, which he also directed. With Broadcast News, James L. Brooks actually directed Albert Brooks to his only Oscar nomination in the supporting actor category. George Kennedy played himself slash Zeron. <laughs> That's the character from the movie. Uh, he appears in Charade, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, Cool Hand Luke, Airport, and Earthquake. We've covered his work in Dirty Dingus McGee and Death Ship so far for the show, and he's back for Just Before Dawn later this year. Growing up, I knew him best for his comedic outings in Police Squad and the Naked Gun films. The last credit I have is Mike Road, who's uncredited as Spaceman, and apparently he played a character named Ugg on the original animated Space Ghost series. He was also the voice of Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards on the 70s Fantastic Four series and the original Race Bannon on the 60s Johnny Quest. Oh, okay. Those are all the credits I had for this one. To celebrate uh, George Kennedy playing himself in this film, I asked you guys (laughs) to each bring uh, three instances of an actor playing a fictionalized version of themselves on film. I think this is really hard. It's hard, but it's also really fun. (laughs) It's, I, I mean, I feel like there's really good examples, but like, it's it's not things that come to your to your mind as readily as you know fictional characters that actors play. You'd yeah. be like, I have to remember when they were themselves in a yeah. movie. <laughs> so why don't we go around, uh, Richard? Do you want to start? Uh, are we talk? Are starting with our top pick that you? Yeah, posted? you start start with uh, yeah your top pick. So my top pick was Merv Griffin as himself, uh, but also the elevator killer right. in Europe. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> in the man with two brains. Uh, my number one is uh, Keanu Reeves in Always Be My Maybe. Now, was he like an ex-boyfriend of the character or they just met him at a restaurant? No, he was a current boyfriend. Oh, current boyfriend. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then my, my number one was Arnold Schwarzenegger in Last Action Hero, which I just love how meta that movie is. It was written as a parody of Arnold movies initially. And the fact that they eventually got Arnold to sign on to play the character just pushes everything way yeah. over the top. And I just love every second of that And movie. I love when he and Maria are, and he starts hawking Planet Hollywood and she gets really fed up. It's like, yeah. I can't believe you brought up the restaurant again. <laughs> yeah. I also love when they're at the blockbuster and the kid's trying to show him that he's in movies, but everything he finds, it's like Stallone playing the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, that's his best work. But yeah, um, what was your runner-up, Richard? Because uh, I have I have so many. I uh, I have three uh, that are actors playing themselves on film, and then I, I have some some. I, I have a lot of them, but uh, I I I I hmm. trying to pick a second place. Well, now here. yeah, now now that I know it's a second place, or or uh, um, well, I'm gonna go with then with the, with the one I have as my second, which was Jeff Goldblum as himself in the movie Pittsburgh. Is he also himself in Annie Hall? Because there's a scene where his agent walks up to him and he says, like, mm. what's my mantra? Or something <laughs> like that. 
Sorry, what, which movie was yours? It's called Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Uh, so Pittsburgh is a fictional documentary about Jeff Goldblum trying to get his <laughs> girlfriend into acting by helping her get her career started by also performing with her in a production of The Music Man for a local theater. Okay. And and it's just like how all this stuff kind of spirals out of control. But it's it's so funny because I've never even heard of this. Yeah, it's such a silly little movie. The best parts, though, are him and Egg Bagley Jr. playing himself. Because <laughs> Ed Bagley Jr. keeps trying to trick Jeff Goldblum into sponsoring his his like green building materials. <laughs> <laughs> that so, sounds like him. Yeah, so he keeps trying, would you hold this for just a second? I want to take your picture with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what was your second place, Jess? I mean, I guess it's probably the most obvious one, which would be john malkovich in being john malkovich yeah that was my so, second also yeah i mean you can't not say it because it's just it's just so great you wrote this entire movie around him and you yeah know. and and that's a situation where the screenwriter specifically wanted john malkovich from the beginning like yeah. charlie kaufman said yeah. this is a john malkovich movie or we're not doing it like yeah. they toyed with i think charlie sheen was an option at one point uh. but it's like john malkovich is the perfect person yeah. for well, that and movie. charlie sheen is still in it yeah because charlie sheen plays like his best friend yeah he's like the machine how's it going malcatraz <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be the same wouldn't be the same without John no. Malkovich. And, uh, and I love the caricature of himself that he's playing in the movie where he's just like a dick to everybody. Like yeah. John Malkovich made some choices in that movie to be like, I'm going to portray myself as an asshole to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's like that scene where they're in his head on the back of the car and the taxi cab driver is like insisting that he played a jewel thief in something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's good stuff. But that was also my, my number two. Yeah. Um, I just love everything Spike Jones does, but Charlie Kaufman is also has a, pretty awesome track record all right richard did you have a number three that you wanted to go with well again i have written down so many because like the movie <laughs> this is the end you could put anybody everybody. down from that yeah, movie. <laughs> every, everybody my, my, but specifically michael Sarah. <laughs> uh, no it was, for me it's specifically it's david krumholtz oh, okay. oh yeah you, you could take really my whole good. weight <laughs> <laughs> uh but i think i'm gonna go uh this is a stupid one henry winkler Covered in bees from Little Nicky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cover Winkler in bees. <laughs> <laughs> what was your number three? So, so I, I'm not entirely sure if this counts, but I just loved, um, I think Penguins is an underrated movie. Oh, totally. And I know what you're going with. <laughs> so he, he's not credited as Werner Herzog, but he plays documentary filmmaker and he does the voiceover for the penguins right at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And I just love it. <laughs> yeah. He's for sure playing himself in that movie. I definitely consider that. Um, and then he's like calling to the, the cameraman to like shove the penguins off yeah. the cliff so they can get footage of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a great one. My number three is Elizabeth Shue in Hamlet two, where uh, he meets her like working a completely different <laughs> job. She's like at a hospital and he's like, has anyone ever told you, you look like Elizabeth Shue? And she's like, yeah, I, I am her. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I quit acting and now I do this for a living. <laughs> but uh, she's so funny in that. And she's great on The Boys, too. Oh, she's so great. Um, the Boys was such a good show. Is such a good show. But I just loved the concept of, like, let's not only have her play herself, but not as an actor. Like, just pretend that she doesn't even do that anymore. <laughs> that she's been doing this other job now. And then I didn't categorize this as an actor playing themselves for people who are not technically actors but i had a separate category of like dan marino and ace ventura is funny to me yeah yeah uh, even though he's not really an actor and then tom jones and mars attacks yeah um uh yeah. i i had one of those too but i guess you could call it an actor too because uh i had jesse the body ventura in, <laughs> okay in uh the movie repossessed 
<laughs> I didn't even know he was in that. Yeah, it's him and Mean Gene uh, announcing the fight between uh, Leslie, Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen as the preacher and the, uh, Linda Blair yeah. playing the character again. <laughs> yeah. and, and just the fight. They're commentating the fight. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I also had Lance Armstrong from Dodgeball in my not technically an actor list, mm. but I like that cameo a lot. And then for not movies, I had a couple that are not technically movies. I didn't bring any not movies. Well, I had James Vanderbeek in Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, where he plays the main character's best friend, and he's, he's James Vanderbeek, James but he's also <laughs> he's also just best friends with the main character. And then Ben Stiller on uh, Extras, the where he's like directing a Holocaust movie, and Ricky Gervais is like an extra in this Holocaust movie, and and Ben Stiller taking himself way too seriously. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Do you know who I am?" And he's like, "It's either Starsky and Hutch. I can never remember." <laughs> um, and then the the last one I had was Carl Weathers on Arrested Development, yeah, he's... where he's playing himself as an acting coach, but he's obviously like living in squalor. Yeah. <laughs> Get yourself a stew going. <laughs> you put that bone in some water. You got yourself a stew going. <laughs> I want to discuss examples that we've reviewed already on the podcast. I came up with 16 of them. What? Including George Kennedy in this film. There's 16. 16 that we've already done? Yeah. Can you think of any no. of the other 15? <laughs> I can tell you the movie and you tell me who played themselves in it. Um. Okay. Wait, like, are you doing like, well, no, like... A lot of them are musicians. I was going to say, is yeah. like Willie Nelson playing Willie Nelson no. in his thing? No, he's okay. not. Okay. Yeah, I guess give me the movie because I don't know. Stunt Rock. Well, the, I don't the know the guy's guy. name. Yeah, Grant, Grant <laughs> yeah. Page is playing himself go. technically in the movie. <laughs> the Gong Show movie. Okay. Do you know who's playing themselves in that? Everybody. <laughs> yeah, but specifically Chuck Barris, the yeah, main Chuck, character. Because like there's, yeah. you, could, you could say 16 from that movie alone. Yeah, that's true. But these are one per movie. Like the most, the headliner character. Uh, the Hollywood Knights. <laughs> Do you remember who was playing themselves in that movie? Which is confusing because it's a period piece. Oh, is it the race car driver guy? Yeah, he's he's he mods cars, but his name was Tony Nancy. Tony Nancy, there you go. <laughs> he had his own color, Tony Nancy yellow. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and we were like, wait, it says he's playing himself, but this is this movie takes place 15 years in the past. <laughs> uh, the next one was Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. It's a much smaller role. It's a guy who's interviewing people at the red carpet premiere of the movie it, oh i do remember that it's army archard yeah bronco billy do you remember who played themselves in bronco billy he's a musician he's performing in a bar before a bar fight. oh okay it's um the devil went down to georgia no no that i'm thinking of a different movie <sighs> that, yeah. i didn't even have that one on the list actually that's that's, uh, That's yeah, from Char- Charlie Daniels was in Urban it, Cowboy. Charlie Roy, Daniels was in Urban Cowboy. Yeah, it's not. It's it's Merle Haggard. Yeah, there you go. I can't. I for some reason those two movies. I get those performances yeah. mixed up in my head. <laughs> so it's, then there's technically 17 total so far, including George Kennedy, because I I had forgotten that there were live performances on stage in Urban Cowboy. Rhodey, who played themselves in Rhodey. Oh, Alice Cooper. Yeah, Alice Cooper was great. Uh, the Blues Brothers. Oh well, yeah. It's basically everyone except for the Blues Brothers in the band. All, everyone else is playing themselves. Yeah. Can't stop the music. The band is playing themselves. Airplane. <laughs> Do you remember who played oh, themselves? Oh, Ethel Merman? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? No. Well, Ethel Merman's not playing herself. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is playing himself. Uh, Loose Shoes. There's only one person who's technically playing themselves in that movie. Is it... Uh... 
fuck, what's his name? Um, he does the the voice of the cat Seagull? guy. No. Oh. Well, yeah, Buddy Hackett. Yeah, Buddy Hackett. Buggy, He's Buddy playing Hackett. himself. He's the only person. Which cat guy were you talking about? Is he not the? No, I'm sorry. I was thinking of Don. What's his name? Don Rickles. No, not Don Rickles. Don Knotts. No. Don Johnson. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even Don, right? I think of Adam Don's. It's what's his name? Don Corleone. <sighs> Isn't there a joke about that in Loose Shoes? <laughs> Where he's like, I worked with Don Amici and then I worked with Don Rickles. <laughs> the I get Buddy Hackett and the guy who was in the second um Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. I'm like, elephant, cards, movie. Uh, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, my brain is not working tonight. Yep. <laughs> well, they both played birds in animated films that I like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays themselves in Smokey and the Bandit 2? Speaking of Smokey and the Bandit 2. <laughs> Again, not an actor, technically. Mm. Technically, he's a football player. Oh, is it Terry Bradshaw? <laughs> it is Terry Bradshaw. Who plays himself in Willie and Phil? Oh, uh, Natalie Wood. Yeah, it's Natalie Wood. It was one of her last roles. Um, one Trick Pony. Who plays himself in that movie? It's two bands, technically. Hmm. Actually, now that I think about it, there's three. Three bands that play themselves? Yeah, the B-52s. The Loving Spoonful. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. uh, Tiny Tim is backstage <laughs> <laughs> playing on his uke. Um, any which way you can. There's there's actually two people from this one. They're both musicians. Mm. It's Fats Domino and Glenn Campbell. I wouldn't have gotten that. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Oh, the host guy? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to know his name. Mike Douglas. And uh, the last one, Modern Romance. Do you guys remember her? <laughs> Uh, for the, the Twitter suggestions of favorite uh, people portraying themselves, uh, Mr. McGrath, Pat McGrath, who we've had as a guest on the show for uh, Those Lips, Those Eyes, suggested Cecil B. DeMille in Sunset Boulevard. The That's Basically the 80s podcast went with Neil Patrick Harris in the first Harold okay, and Kumar yeah, White yeah. Castle. At 1-800-4-PROBS thought a little outside the box and suggested Robert Loja from that Minute Maid commercial. <laughs> <laughs> At Lee Singer... Went with Orson Welles as himself from 1944's Follow the Boys, where he plays like a magician, but he's mm. himself as the magician. He's introduced as Orson Welles. Steven Sperling went with Lucille Ball as Lucille Ball in Best Foot Forward. The Watch Movie Do podcast went with Michael Jordan and Bill Murray in Space Jam. Okay. That's a good one. At Brian R. Harris picked Kevin Garnett from the Safdie's Uncut Gems. It's a more recent one. At T. Holzerman couldn't decide between george harrison on the simpsons or tom hanks in the simpsons movie i had tom hanks as one of my yeah. undecideds i do like george harrison though on the simpsons episode where like homer's like really really excited and then he's like where did you get that brownie <laughs> at t underscore futurist said james brolin as james brolin as peewee herman in peewee's big adventure oh my god that's <laughs> which so is great. Another great choice that is such a good choice at media path pod suggested zoe bell and death proof and at H. Barletto also went with uh, John Malkovich, the one that we both picked from being John Malkovich. At Dex Rio 1 went with Chuck Norris in Dodgeball, which reminded me of the Lance Armstrong cameo, which I used to love, but is actually less funny now. Mm. Actually, I decided to quit. Lance, quit. 
You know, once I was thinking about quitting when I was diagnosed with brain, lung, and testicular cancer all at the same time. But with the love and support of my friends and family, I got back on the bike, and I won the Tour de France five times in a row. But I'm sure you have a good reason to quit. Um, on our Discord, we had Ray H. suggested Bruce Campbell in My Name is Bruce, John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich, and Jean-Claude Van Damme from JCVD. Carlos suggested Jennifer Tilly as Jennifer Tilly in Seed of Chucky, which I didn't even realize she was playing herself She's in that movie <laughs> until oh I looked God. it up. Oh my God, that's great. I didn't know that either. Ian Graham brought up soccer player Paley's performance as himself in Mike Bassett, England Manager. Um, those are all the credits that we have for people playing themselves. Was there anybody else that we didn't list that you wanted to mention, Richard? Uh, I mean, I, like I said, my list goes on and on. Uh, I'll just mention one more. Uh, Billy Zane from Zoolander. <laughs> okay, yeah. You better listen to Billy Zane. <laughs> He's a cool dude. <laughs> um, yeah, I really like this movie. I think that it's irritating, but it's supposed to be irritating that it's very smart, that the characters are extremely believable at the same time as they're being, you know, infuriating. Yeah, I and, and that's fine. And I think that that could be a good movie. I think I just need something to love i need something to hold on to that isn't infuriating characters yeah because otherwise i just i can't i can't enjoy it there's no bruno kirby can't save this film for you it's <laughs> too much to ask maybe he could have been in it more yeah i like true. him a lot yeah <laughs> uh, my, my thing is if characters have to go through some kind of change and no characters change throughout this entire film that's true yeah, I think that's fair. Because at the end of the movie, they're still doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Even Walter Sobchak goes through some kind of change in does Big he? Lebowski. I think he does. He says he's sorry. At the end, he says he's sorry. And I think that that's a big thing for Walter to do. I don't know if he's sorry in a life sense or if he's literally just sorry for throwing Donnie's ashes <laughs> in his face. <laughs> I don't know. I feel I feel it's a pretty sincere sorry. Maybe. Uh, but yeah, it's it was it just didn't do anything for me and i worry i've already harped about how much i thought it was like oh my god this is just a horror film yeah and and i don't know if i'm supposed to be scared uh, i think by the end you are yeah. I, I honestly feel like when they're at the cabin out in the middle of nowhere the whole point of getting them in this secluded place was to freak you out a little bit as nah, the yeah i don't think it is i, I don't really know why don't. else you take that move i i think the point is clearly to be like this guy is a maniac. Like, he's dangerous. And he's getting physical with her, and he takes her purse away from her, and he's like, look, I've got your purse. Let's just stay, and we'll have fun. And you're fully expecting her to say, no, I want to leave. Let me out. And he he wouldn't have done it. I, I am certain that if she had demanded that he let her go, that she he, he would not have – she would never have left that cabin. I don't know. Maybe I checked out by this point in the movie. Either way, it gets I wasn't. A, it, it did, I wasn't frightened for her at all at the end. Well, you like this character more than I did. I give it a thumbs up. No, it's a thumbs down. It's a it's a down for me as well. Letterbox, what are we thinking, Richard? Uh, I have this at number twenty one, which puts it below all night long, but above backroads. Jess. I have it at twenty two. I have it below backroads and above earthbound. I have it at one. Jesus. So it's above scanners. Wow. You are insane. Yeah, I like this movie a lot. I also, uh, when we have the technology, <laughs> uh -huh. I will use VR to build this exact apartment that he has because I love the decor of, <laughs> of Robert's apartment in this film. The couch is gorgeous. Like I want, I literally, no joke, want that couch right now. But 
it's such like it's clean it's minimalist it doesn't seem like as cluttery as every apartment that we've seen in the 1980s so far it just looks very modern not covered in plants there's no (laughs) plants anywhere um but yeah i like this movie a lot it's my number one right now um i think that's everything for modern romance if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Disney's Amy, which IMDb describes like so. A woman leaves her husband after the death of her child to teach deaf children how to speak. Her own child was deaf, and although she has no formal training, she successfully teaches one boy. That's totally wrong. And and way too specific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'll tell you the entire, every, every little <laughs> turn of the story, uh, and then get it wrong, essentially. Amy, next week. We leave you now with the trailer for Amy. Every once in a while, there comes to the screen a film of incredible optimism. I am going to teach you to speak just the way I do. Everyone knows that the deaf cannot speak. Yes, I can. A story of personal courage. Do you know what Mr. Moon said? No, what? He said on my birthday when I'm five, my eyes will open. That's real fine, Wesley. Amy, she was a different kind of heroine. Mm. Now you try it. Mother. Henry? Is that my Henry? Henry? I'm talking. Amy, daring what no one had tried before. Teach me to hope. Teach me to dare. Teach me a secret. Walt Disney Productions proudly presents the motion picture, Amy. Amy. She taught them to speak. They taught her to love.